We're continuing our series today, uh, God, His Land, and His People. Today we're focusing on the book of Amos, and Amos is a prophet. I'll say a little bit more about him in just a minute, but Amos is a prophet whose prophecy was directed to a society that was very much characterized by income and wealth inequality. So I wanted to start off by actually showing you two videos, two short videos this morning that deal with those issues, both in the United States and in worldwide. Just a couple of comments before the videos. Number one, as I've said before, I am not an economist or a scientist or have particular expertise in these areas. So I've just tried to find a couple of videos that I think present um, uh, uh, information that comes from uh, trustworthy sources. And it's obviously that in a short video, one cannot say everything. I'm sure there are nuances that are missed. Uh, not everything is complete. But I just want to give you an idea of um, the way inequality at this point is working in our world. And hopefully this will stimulate you to do more of your own research and become more educated in these areas yourself. So, Wealth Inequality, uh, two videos. Income inequality has always existed in the U.S., but the gap between rich and poor hasn't always been as wide as it is today. Let's take a look at how economic and political forces have changed the share of income held by the whole bottom 50% and just the top 1% of earners. The mid-century was a period of economic stability. The richest 1% earned 13% of all U.S. income, while the bottom half earned 20% of income. In the 1960s, Americans were still riding a post-war job boom. In the 70s, the lowest-paid Americans got a boost from a steadily increasing minimum wage. Sky-high salaries weren't as typical as they are today. The 80s changed everything. Minimum wage stagnated. Factory jobs were automated or outsourced. Ronald Reagan passed huge tax cuts for the richest, and executive pay soared. By the mid-90s, the earnings of the top 1% surpassed everyone in the bottom half altogether. The rich were on a tear, and even financial crashes in the 2000s didn't slow them down. Today, the share of income claimed by those at the very top and those in the bottom half are completely reversed from what they were in the 60s. Other countries don't have such a wide gap between rich and poor. Among economically developed nations, the U.S. is one of the most unequal, according to the Gini Index, which rates places based on how wealth is distributed. The higher the number, the more unequal the country is. The top 1% in the U.S. is primarily made up of men. Women-dominated fields like teaching and waitressing are lower paying. Women are promoted less often than men. They make 82 cents for every dollar that men make. The top tier is also very white. Minority groups face systemic racism that has contributed to gaps in education, housing, and employment opportunities. African Americans make only 78 cents for every dollar white people make. 
Inequality varies across the U.S. because of regional economics. Large urban areas like New York City are more unequal because they have low-income residents as well as those in tech, finance, and other industries that offer sky-high wages. Whereas the Great Lakes region is more equal because the wage gap there isn't as wide. Race plays a role, too. Southern states, which are generally more racially diverse, tend to be more unequal, while pockets of the West that are more white tend to be more equal. Upward social mobility is especially challenging for those at the very bottom. The rich tend to stay rich, and the poor tend to stay poor. So what could be done? Some legislators have proposed putting the brakes on runaway wealth by raising income taxes on top earners. Many states recently increased the minimum wage, and some states are closing education gaps by expanding access to early learning programs. But on a federal level, there's no consensus, and ultimately, closing the gap between rich and poor will require agreement from an increasingly partisan government, as well as societal shifts to combat sexism and racism. Change isn't around the corner, but understanding how we got here in the first place is a good first step. People are talking a lot about inequality these days, about the fact that the richest 1% have so much more than everybody else. But most of the focus seems to be on the United States, and it strikes me that the same story needs to be told about global inequality, too. So I did some research, and this is what I found from reliable sources like the UN. It turns out that while the US is totally out of whack, things are actually way worse for the planet as a whole. Let's start with this graph a perfectly even distribution of wealth among all living people, with everyone divided into five equal groups. Now, let's show how much each group actually has. Shocking, right? 80% of the world's people barely have any wealth. It's hard to even see them on the charts. Meanwhile, the richest 2%, they have more wealth than half of the rest of the world. Let's look at this chart another way. Let's take the whole world's population, all 7 billion of us, and reduce it to just a representative 100 individuals. Here they are, poorest people on the left, richest people on the right. Now let's show how the world's total wealth, roughly $223 trillion, is distributed. The vast majority have practically nothing, nothing with which to educate their children, nothing with which to pay for basic medicines, while the richest 1% they've accumulated 43% of our world's wealth. The bottom 80%, meanwhile, that's 8 out of every 10 people, have just 6% between them. But even this doesn't really show how extreme things have become. The richest 300 people on Earth have the same wealth as the poorest 3 billion. So the number of people it takes to fill a mid-sized commercial aircraft have more wealth than the populations of India, China, the U.S., and Brazil combined. We can also see this difference geographically, with a huge and growing gap between a few rich places versus the majority of the world. For most of history, things were much more equal. 200 years ago, rich countries were only three times richer than poor countries. By the end of colonialism in the 1960s, they were 35 times richer. Today, they're about 80 times richer. Rich countries try to compensate for this by giving aid to poor countries, about $130 billion each year. That's a lot of money. So then why does the wealth gap keep getting bigger? One reason I found is that large corporations are taking more than $900 billion out of poor countries each year 
through a form of tax avoidance called trade mispricing. On top of this, each year poor countries are paying about $600 billion in debt service to rich countries on loans that have already been paid off many times over. And then there's the money that poor countries lose from trade rules imposed by rich countries to get access to more resources and cheaper labor. Economists from the University of Massachusetts calculate that this costs poor countries about $500 billion a year. Altogether, that's more than $2 trillion that flows from some of the poorest parts of the world to the richest every year. Rich governments like to say they're helping poor countries develop, but who's developing who here? This makes me think that there's something wrong with the basic rules of the global economy. It can't be okay that the wealth of our planet is becoming so concentrated in the hands of such a tiny number of people. The only reasonable response, it seems to me, and our only hope, is to change the rules. I will note that the second video was made in 2013, so actually it's one statistic, well, a number of statistics are probably off already, but it's not um, 300 people who have the same or more wealth than half the world, it's now only 82. So that gap has, has, has grown even more in the last eight or nine years. Uh, than it was uh, when this video was made. Today we're going to be looking at the prophet Amos. Amos lived about 750 or 60 years before the birth of Christ. During the rule of, you remember at that time, the, the, the kingdom of Israel was split into north and south kingdoms. In the south, King Uzziah was the king, and in the north, uh, Jeroboam II was the king. Um, Amos preached actually in a time of relative prosperity and peace. Uh, there wasn't any disaster on the horizon at the point at which he spoke. But he did speak against an increased gap between the very wealthy and the very poor. And it's interesting that Amos, and if you look him up, you can find this out for yourself. Amos was a sheep herder and a sycamore fig farmer. And you'll notice, actually, that numbers of the prophets in the Old Testament were kind of normal, average people. And one reason for that was because the kings also had their own prophets, but they were paid professionals. And because they were paid professionals, they tended to say what the king wanted to hear. So God raised up these kind of average Joes to come in and give the message that God actually uh, wanted to hear. Amos was from the southern kingdom, from Judah, from the king, the, under King Uzziah, but he did his preaching in the northern kingdom to uh, King Jeroboam II. And the situation in Israel at that time was this, and now I'm quoting from uh, Ellen Davis her book on biblical agriculture. Listen to this very carefully because, and as you hopefully you noticed in the second video we showed, a couple of these themes relate directly back to the themes we talked about last week in terms of the colonization of Africa by Western countries and the agricultural um, um, uh, breakup or breakdown that that caused. So here's Ellen Davis. The prophecy of Amos seems to have been prompted 
by a large-scale transformation of both the land and rural economy. Archaeological evidence and also multiple strands of the biblical text attest to the, to the development of a centralized system of commodity agriculture. And you should re- remember, you should recognize this term, although we didn't use exactly this term last week. That in Africa, because of colonization, where people were growing foods that they could actually use and eat and trade with each other, they were pushed into growing commodity crops like cotton or, um, or wheat that needed or could be sold to the West. Those are called commodity agriculture. And that's what happened at the time of Amos. Commodity agriculture controlled by the government, the crown. The old subsistence economy, says Davis, was supplanted by specialized agriculture. The same process that happened in the 18 and 1900s with colonial Africa was happening back in Israel seven centuries before Christ. The new system was designed to maximize production of the three most important commodities, grain to feed the cities, wine and olive oil, the more expensive products. These products were designed to provide export revenue and to satisfy the taste for luxury now cultivated among those who were rich. Farmers felt the burden. Taxation in kind of agricultural products was compounded by conscription for labor gangs and military service, and also by appropriation of valuable metals for military purposes. Iron that might have been used for plowshares was turned into swords. So in the time of Amos, the the kings and the empire is making this switch from concern for the land and the local farmer and local economies that are able to support themselves into a commodity specialized agriculture economy, which began to destroy the relationship between the average person and his land or her land, mostly is in that time. And then also began to increase the gap between the wealthy and the poor. And Amos describes this very well in chapter 8, the verses 4 to 6. We're going to be reading this morning a number of passages from Amos. The first one should come up on your screen uh, in a second. Amos 4, Amos 8, sorry, the verses 4 to 6. Listen, hear this, says Amos. You who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? When's this holiday day time going to be over? Because we want to sell again. And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale. And now again, whenever you see the word Sabbath in the Old Testament, you should already be thinking of more than just what we do or don't do on Sunday. But this rest, not only for God's people, but for his land. When is this Sabbath going to be over, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah, which is a measure, small, and the shekel great, the shekel is the coin, 
and deal deceitfully with false balances. Listen to this. That we may buy the poor for silver. That we may buy the poor for silver. And again, if you remember that video that we just showed about world, world wealth inequality, we are buying the poor in our day for minerals, for our iPhones and electronic devices. When will the Sabbath be over that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals? Where do your Nikes come from? Where does your cheap clothing come from? Where do all the other cheap goods that we buy? Where does all that come from? Are we not buying the needy for a pair of sandals? and selling the chaff of the wheat. And this brokenness, the brokenness in in the economy, that this inequality of wealth, the oppression and abuse of the poor, and not just the poor, but also the land and the creation, caused God great distress. In Amos chapter 3, verse 2, we find this written. You only have I known, Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. And that word earth there is the word Adama in Hebrew, which means arable land. That is land that can be cultivated and used to grow crops from which you can live. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, Israel, Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And this is a theme throughout the whole Old Testament. God has chosen Abraham and the Jewish people, the people of Israel, to be this colony of this new way of living after the brokenness caused by the fall in Genesis 3 and by Noah, in in the generation of Noah. And now God is doing a new thing. Abraham, I want to send you to an arable land. And I want you to live there. And I want you to care for one another. And I want you to care for the land. And I want to engage with you in this dance that we've talked about between God and his people and his land. This is the heart desire of God. This is what he made the whole thing for. And it's broken. The land is being destroyed. And it's Everything is out of balance, and the poor are being oppressed, and the wealth are getting wealthier. The wealthy are getting wealthier. And everything is crumbling and breaking down. And this gives God great distress. And he says, I will punish you. And this is a theme throughout all of the Old Testament. I will punish you. There is going to come consequence for breaking this dance for destroying each other for not living in relationship with me and for destroying the world I've created. But it's not just, and this is a subtle theme in the old Testament, but you really can't see it. It's not just that God is inflicting something upon nature. It's also, there's a, there's this theme that, and Ellen Davis brings this out very well, that the nature itself comes in rebellion. 
It's almost like the nature is saying, you're hurting me too, and I am going to rise up against you. Amos 1 verse 2. And Amos said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn. The pastures are mourning. See that? The land is personalized. And the top of Carmel, this great mountain of Carmel, which is this source of snow and water for all of the water that comes into Israel, the top of Carmel withers. Because of what you have done and are doing, the nature itself rises up and suffers. Not rise up. The nature itself suffers. And then in 8 verses 7 to 9, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not, listen to this, the land tremble. And here's the same word, Adama, the arable land, tremble on this account. And everyone mourn who dwells in it. And all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And before you go on to the next slide, let me just comment on this. The book of Amos begins in in verse 1 with this verse saying, the words of Amos among the shepherds which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of of Joash, king of Israel. Listen to this. Two years before the earthquake. So there's earthquake in all of this. And you can see that in this text. The Nile is rising and sinking again. There's this earthquake image will rise like the Nile, be tossed and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And then he goes on. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. The nature will be turned on its head or the nature will turn itself on its head in protest at what people are doing to it. And again from Davis, the natural world operates as God's megaphone to rouse an unhearing world. Rather than declaring God's glory, as in Psalm 19, the non-human creation proclaims his anger. Since the people have not listened to warnings mediated through God's human agents, God chooses to speak through his cosmic one. And there is no better week to think about these verses than the week that we've just had, particularly with what's happened in Texas. This combination, and again, I don't know everything, but it's fairly obvious that this combination of this polar vortex sinking down to the deep south due to climate issues, And then the way that electrical companies exploit and are only out, maybe not only is too strong of a word, but anyway, what are they out for? Profit. So we're not going to pay attention to the things that we need to do to protect our people from what happens when the nature 
reaches up and grabs us. And I challenge you, as you read the news about Texas, but all of, all of our country, of course, to perhaps think about it in these terms. I'm not trying to make a one-to-one -one correlation here necessarily, but it certainly is striking to me that some of the things that we're seeing now in our, in our world today, and particularly in our country, and again in Texas this week, they just, they just resonate exactly with the message that Amos is saying. There's so much wealth inequality. The powerful are oppressing the rich in the United States and all over the world. Because of that, the nature rises up. And the poor and the marginalized and the women and African-Americans particularly are the ones that get the shaft. And this brings great distress to God because they are people that God has made and this is land that he has made and he doesn't want it this way. And all through the book of Amos, God is sending judgment. He's sending fire. He's sending enemies to attack them. The houses of the rich will be destroyed. There will be famine, blight, and plague. There will be death leading to great mourning. The land and the cities will be made waste and desolate. And finally, in the, in the, in the most most terrible expression of all, Israel will be removed from its land. In a couple of weeks, we're going to look at Jeremiah where that's happened. Israel will be moved from that Adama, that arable land. And the land will finally receive, you remember we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the Sabbath that it so longs for. But God's judgment, and as you, as, if you read Amos, and I, I, I suggest you do that, keep, your, keep, your, keep the news from Texas on one half of your screen and read Amos on the other half and see what that does for you. God's judgment, which in Amos sounds so terrible and so definitive, is never the end of the story. Because God's judgment is never uh, retributive. It's never designed to just punish. It's never designed to just beat and cause pain. It's always restorative. It's always designed to bring people back into this dance that he, for, that, that he so longs for. And so it is in Amos. At the very end of Amos... The last verses of Amos, after God has declared all this terrible judgment, he cannot leave it there. And he closes the book of Amos with these words. Amos 9, verses 11 to 15. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. Remember these words, the booth of David. And repair its breaches and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the harvest and the planting will be so abundant that it will happen at the same time. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, 
and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make their gardens and eat their fruit. See that? Make their gardens and themselves eat the fruit. Plant their vineyards and themselves drink their wine. I will plant them on their land, Adama, the self, the same word, arable land. They shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. I will never remove them. They will never be uprooted again. Eight centuries later, the young church of Jesus Christ gathered at a critical moment. Jesus had come, the Messiah had come, he had lived, he'd been killed, he'd risen from the grave, he'd ascended to heaven, and he'd given his disciples the mission to go out into the world and spread the good news of Christ's kingdom, that God was in Christ reconciling all to himself and making everything right again. And they had begun to do that, these early Christians, but the same forces that drive the inequalities and injustices of our age were in play then also, even in the church. They did not know what to do with the foreigners, with the goyim, with the ethne, with the non-Jews who were coming to follow this Jesus. They did not know how to live as followers of Jesus in the empire of that time, the Roman Empire. And so conflict arose among them. And it threatened to split the church into at least two and probably more factions. And so they gathered together in Acts 15 in council. And they talked about this for I don't know how long. And they discussed with each other. And and if you know anything about the way Jews discussed with each other, it was wild and it was active and it was living and it it was fierce. And then toward the end, James stood up, the brother of Jesus. And would you believe what he does? He quotes Amos. And he says, brothers, with this, the words of the the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent, the booth of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes things, these things known from of old, Acts 15, 15 to 18. James, the brother of Jesus, calls the church back to its mission, to unity, by quoting Amos, the prophet who railed against economic imbalance and inequality. And he says, Jesus is here, and because Jesus is here, things are coming together. And we cannot keep each other out. There are no divisions anymore between us. And we need to pay attention to each other. And we need to pay attention to the world that God has given us because he's bringing everything together. He's rebuilding the ruins and restoring things. And that's what the church is about. And that's the mission that God has given us. I wanted to conclude with a short video from 
the Davos conference that was held just about exactly two years ago. Some of you may recognize the first speaker, who's the Dutch historian, Rutger Brechtman. Very famous speech he gave at that um, conference. And then the second part is probably a piece of that uh, panel discussion that you have not heard. But I just wanted to bring things together with this uh, short video clip. My first time at Davos, and, uh, and I find it quite a bewildering experience, to be honest. I mean, 1,500 private yets have flown in here to hear Sir David Attenborough speak about, you know, how we're wrecking the planet. And, uh, I mean, I hear people talk in the language of participation and justice and equality and transparency. But then, I mean, almost no one raises the real issue of tax avoidance, right? And of the rich just not paying their fair share. I mean, it feels like I'm at a firefighters fighters conference and no one's allowed to speak about water, right? The gentleman who talked about, who said we've just talked taxes and that jobs are there and there's low and unemployment rates are low. Let me tell you something. We're talking about jobs, but the quality of those jobs. And we also work with poultry workers in the richest country in the world, the United States. Poultry workers. These are women who are cutting the chickens and packing them, and we buy them in the supermarkets. Dolores, one woman we work with there, told us that she and her co-workers have to wear diapers to work because they are not allowed toilet breaks. This is in the richest country in the world. That's not a dignified job. Those are the jobs we are being told about, that globalization is bringing jobs. The quality of the jobs matter. It matters. These are not jobs of dignity. In many countries, workers no longer have a, a voice. They are not allowed to unionize. They are not allowed to negotiate for, for salaries. So we're talking about jobs, but jobs that bring dignity. We are talking about health care. The World Bank has told us that 3.4 billion people who earn $5.5 a day are on the verge, are just a medical bill away from sinking into poverty. They don't have health care. They are just a crop failure away from sinking back into poverty. They have no crop insurance. So don't tell me about low levels of unemployment. You are counting the wrong things. You're not counting dignity of people. You're counting exploited people. I, I if you remember about exactly two years ago and up until just about exactly a year ago, the U.S. government was touting the extremely low unemployment figures in the United States. And what this dear lady is saying to us is, okay, it may be that lots of people get jobs, but what kind of jobs are they? And are they jobs that raise them up from being exploited and being used into a place of dignity? You know, you can educate yourselves on these issues. It's really not that hard. You can take time to do that. Does the cheap chicken that I buy at the Giant or the Acme or the Kroger or the Aldi, are those low prices built on the back of someone who has to wear a diaper all day? Could I buy perhaps more expensive, organic, worker-friendly products 
and perhaps eat less. Then you'd be solving two problems in one go. Can we seek ways to remake broken patterns of who makes decisions, who gets the good jobs, who's protected and who's targeted by laws, and who owns the land? As a white person, can I confront the broken parts of myself that still enjoy the benefits of these unjust patterns so that I can buy everything so cheap? Can we get to know and love our neighbors? And together with them, lobby for just policies. And follow that love into creating life-giving communities based on connection and collaboration. One individual can't do it. Trinity community itself couldn't do it. It's like an impossible task. But Christ calls us, the same Christ who gave his word to Amos, the same Christ who gave that word to his brother James at that council, now gives that word to us today and says, go. Do everything you can to restore this stance, to take care of each other, to take care of the land that I've given you, and to walk humbly with your God. Amen.